Hi, everyone. You're listening to Canada Horse Podcast, and we're your hosts, Nikki Porter and Nadine Smith. We strive to enhance the lives of horse owners by facilitating conversations that make people want to talk. It is our passion for horses and continuous learning that is the driving force behind the conversations here on Canada Horse Podcast. We believe in education over judgment and informed choices over following the crowd. As equestrians, it's important for us to know the whys behind the decisions we make for both ourselves and our horses. The bad thing and the good thing is that you're saying, you know, the owners can actually have such an impact that- A huge deciding factor. Right. And so like we as owners, if we know that, which is why we're here today, Mm -hmm. maybe we can change that. And so we know based on social media, based on things that have happened in the public, that veterinarians have had a pretty difficult time and maybe for a long time. How can you explain that to us, like the struggles that you guys as veterinarians have gone through or are going through and and those struggles and how, how do the owners have an impact on that? Hello, you're listening to episode 50 of Canada Horse Podcast. Today, we're welcoming back veterinarian Dr. Chris White. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming back to talk with us again today. And I have a feeling this is a pretty passionate topic for you. Yeah, I get the impression you guys are kind of typecasting me into real bummer topics. (laughs) And I'm more than happy to play along. So thank you for having me. Hi, Chris. Uh, I'm not sure how you've become the go-to person for the most emotional topics, (laughs) but uh, you first joined us on episode 24 when we discussed equine euthanasia, Mm -hmm. which is one that we did receive a lot of heartfelt thanks about. So we did appreciate that very much. Mm -hmm, And today we're going to talk about the mental health of veterinary professionals in order to bring awareness to the issues and to give some suggestions on what we as owners can actually do to help the situation. I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. Nadine and Chris, you'll appreciate hearing this. I got a message from someone just this week who had listened to our past episode together And she had to put her dog down this week. And she said she went back to the episode and she was so grateful because it was exactly what she needed to hear. You said some really impactful things in that episode that I think people needed to hear from a veterinarian. They needed to hear that they know when they know and when not to doubt things. And I think that the weight of your words are very, very valuable. Uh, And I don't have any doubt that in this conversation that we're having today, although it is a very challenging one, it is also equally as important as the one that we've already had. And we are honored that you decided that this was a good thing to talk about. I think you're right. I think it's We've needed to have the conversation for a while and um, I can't speak to the entire profession, but I, you know, I've only practiced equine medicine since school. So I'm excited to share my thoughts, my experiences, and um, hope I don't get uh, the mob after me after this. (laughs) I don't think you will. I don't think you will. I think that uh, it's definitely one of the tough conversations that uh, need to be had and that Nadine and I have opened ourselves up to yet again. Uh, So 
We will get to the main topic in a minute, but first, things have changed for you professionally since we last mm-hmm. talked, Chris. And I should mention, we have heard so many great things about you and the community since we first met. What have you been up to since we last talked? Oh, that's, thank you. That's really nice to hear. Um, So currently I am at a different practice down in the Valley of the Annapolis Valley in Kentville, Nova Scotia, for anyone out of the province. Um, I practice alongside my wife, Dr. Davina Hansen. For anyone who doesn't know we're married, um, she's the reason I moved to Canada. <laughs> um, so, no, I'm really happy there. I am their sports medicine consultant. So I kind of spend my days just x-raying, ultrasounding, injecting horses. And then I'm, I'm really thrilled to be there to kind of grow the practice and grow my career. And I also work for a veterinary imaging company. So I get to visit clinics across Canada, just kind of helping them with their imaging. And it's just, a, it's always been a big passion of mine. So I'm excited I can grow it to kind of make it my full-time career. That's really neat. So, well, I guess I I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. The first one will comment. My husband came home from working a random shift at an outpatient clinic the other day. And he said he met a nurse or someone at the hospital who had horses and who was talking about this phenomenal lameness vet that she knew or a sound vet or whatever. I don't know exactly how he put it, but anyway, it was you. And so I was like, oh, we actually talked to him. We're having another conversation with him soon. He's like, well, apparently he's awesome because he saw her horses and they're doing great. <laughs> That's awesome to hear. Yeah, it's I'm not a jack of all trades. I'm a master of one. I'm very good at one thing. And um, the rest of the time, I just technician for my wife. Oh, well, that's so cool. That you guys work together like that. And I mean, you did kind of allude to that in our last conversation. You hadn't made all the moves yet. But did, was it always your plan to want to specialize and get out of Gen- I don't know what you call it. General practice, general practice of yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's always been a goal, and it's just been very difficult in Nova Scotia. Um, mm-hmm. it's not a full time job here still. You know, where I worked in the states, I did a lot more of it, and then when I moved to Nova Scotia, there's just not the volume of horses and the volume of sport horse clients. So regardless, I'm still really happy I get to do even as much as I do. But yeah, it really was the kind of goal even back in school, but um. You know, my wife does not want to leave the Annapolis Valley, and I'd rather be married than a big fancy full-time sport horse vet instead of moving to Ocala or Vancouver. So uh, I'm playing the cards I'm dealt. Well, it's going well so far. (laughs) I think that, you know, I can speak for the majority of horse people that it's really great that people are choosing to stay in Nova Scotia. And, you know, it's pretty obvious that there are more optimal places for veterinarians to work uh, when it comes to equine practices. But what I've seen is a huge shift in accessibility for us as clientele. So I really appreciate it. Now I feel confident that if my horse is lame, I'm like, okay, well, I have an answer to this versus feeling like, you know, I'm I'm just going to struggle until there's a, a dire need to see a vet. Absolutely. And you know, like um, you maritime girls don't like to leave and <laughs> I've grown to really love it here. I think, um, <laughs> I don't know if the term, I know on PEI, I'm considered to come from away, a CFA. Am I still a CFA <laughs> here in Nova Scotia? Uh, PEI is a little more, um, I don't know what's, <laughs> what's the word. When, when you're from PEI, you're, you're either from there or you're from away. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think your mother has to be from PEI for you to be from PEI. Right? I mean, I haven't been, I haven't lived there in, I think, 15 years. And I still say I'm from PEI. <laughs> I, grew up in, I grew up in Maine. Maine is basically Canada without healthcare. So it's not a culture shock. <laughs> okay. All right. I think we're avoiding the, uh, okay. the seriousness of this conversation. So <laughs> to keep us on track, Chris, we have seen and heard that people are really excited about the services that you are offering. Obviously, you know, in the conversation we've just had, can you tell us a bit more about what it is exactly that you are offering? What do people call you for? Yeah, absolutely. So for the large majority, um, 99% of what I do is equine lameness. So basically, you know, we're fully stocked to do stall side radiology, cell side ultrasound, um, joint injections, but then we have a lot more stall side orthobiologics. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with those, but orthobiologics is essentially the joint cocktail is processed from the horse's own blood. And so we have several options for that, whether that be PRP, Alpha 2M, um, ProStride even. I really love Noltrex. It's a, a hydrogel that is great for kind of those joints that are really, really trashed. And I'm really lucky that Cornwallis was even open to this suggestion because when they started, they were like, well, we've never had any high-end lameness here before. And I'm thrilled. I'm happy that it took off. I work with a lot of the veterinarians locally. So it's not just Cornwallis clients I see. I go to Fundy. Um, I work really well with Dr. Lawson and Pike. I do a lot for Dr. Boyce down in Yarmouth for Evangeline. Um, Dr. Nicole McCaddy. I get along Dr. Coyville. I get along with all of them. And I think that's where I, I hope veterinary medicine is going where we're a community, we're a network, we're not just competitors. So I am very happy where I am and it's a great clinic. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Yeah. That's for sure. What I really hoped that you would answer was that people that are not patients of that specific mm -hmm. clinic could, you know, consult with you. So that's, that's really great. Yeah, no, I, I talk to a lot of vets all the time. And I mean, I am not God's gift to veterinary medicine. I do not claim to be. <laughs> but um, it's really nice to have that consultation and just chat about cases. And even if I don't get involved, I love hearing about them. And yeah, I talked to Dr. Pike like for an hour yesterday <laughs> about um, a up in Halifax. Yeah. Okay. So you've had a lot of experience so far in this veterinary world and dealt with mm -hmm. a lot of different clients and from the US and into Canada. And I guess what we wanted in order to lead into this conversation, we wanted to know why did you become a vet? Yeah. In short, I think I kind of went into veterinary medicine a little differently than other people. Whereas, you know, my wife loves medicine and she really loves the nitty and gritty of fixing things and surgery and internal med. I just really love horses. I was never a talented trainer. I've ridden all my life, but I was never, I was never going to make it as a trainer. <laughs> um, so I wanted to try to come up with a different way of how to make horses my source of income, like my job, my livelihood. And I was always relatively smart in school. And I was like, I wonder if I could be a vet. And then it really wasn't until my horse developed this crippling lameness <laughs> that, you know, he would spend hours on appointments of lameness exams. And then he got an MRI. And I remember reading the MRI with a surgeon when I was in high school being like, this is so cool. This is exactly why it's like, that's why my horse is lame. And you fixed it. And ever since then, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Very cool. Okay. Very cool. We have a young lady at our barn right now who just got accepted into a school in PEI. And her goal would be to uh, eventually become a vet. 
And so I've all, of course, already had in my head that I was like, I'm going to tell her that she needs to listen to these episodes. (laughs) Um, But I feel like she'll resonate with that as well. She, you know, she is very good in school. Um, I think she's probably attracted to some of the medicine side of things, but I think it is, it's a possibility for people to be able to look at an opportunity and say, I really enjoy horses, but I'm not going to be a trainer. I mean, she could be, she's very talented, but, Mm -hmm. but how can I bring horses into my, my career? So that is very cool. I'm glad you shared that with us. So we're going to move into some of the tougher conversation, uh, the tougher questions. Do you mind just sharing how has the job that you were expecting to go into versus the reality of your career either lined up or been different for you? Yeah, um, I would say I think the best way to describe it is almost like a harsh reality because there's a lot of factors that go into that and we'll get into it. Um, I mean, number one factor for me, I'm American, so I paid U.S. tuition. So I graduated school with $270,000 U.S., which is about, I don't know, three fifty Canadian. So like a relatively nice house. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing is the demand. Like when you're in school, you you get excited to be like, yeah, I can handle it all. Like I don't need to, I don't need a marriage. I don't need a child. I don't need a life. I just want to do this. And um, you quickly realize that's not the case and it's not sustainable. And then owners can make this job hell. And we'll get into why. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not every, not the majority, but you always have your great, great A clients and you have majority are great, but some, every vet has horror stories of particular clients. In the human world, in our, in our healthcare here in Canada, we get to blame a lot of it on the government. We, mm. when things are wrong, when the system doesn't work, we blame it on the system instead of the patients. You know, we what we need here is a lot of um, patient education. It's the way we like to say it. (laughs) Um, If there was a lot more patient education and changing in the system, things would go a lot better. I think part of, you know, like the bad thing and the good thing is that you're saying, you know, the owners can actually have such an impact that a huge deciding factor. Right. And so like we as owners, if, if we know that, which is why we're here today, Mm -hmm. maybe we can change that. And, and so, you know, we know based on social media, based on things that have happened in the public, that veterinarians have had a pretty difficult time and and maybe for a long time. How can you explain that to us? Like the struggles that you guys as veterinarians have gone through or are going through and, and those struggles and how, how do the owners have an impact on that? You know, I think the first biggest elephant in the room is finances. Mm -hmm. Like, let's get that. Let's clear that. So I think what people don't understand is, um, the same ultrasound I have is the same one your your husband works with, Nadine. Mm-hmm. Same cost, $50,000. I'm sure the hospital charges way more than my $120 for an ultrasound exam. <laughs> but yeah. that doesn't mean I still don't have to pay it off. That just still doesn't mean my x-ray is not $75,000. I'm not trying to brag. I wish it wasn't. Mm-hmm. I think a really big frustration for us is the people who kind of complain about our costs. Mm-hmm. Because I don't do anything without giving someone a rough estimate. 
of how much something is going to cost them. And if you can't afford it, I'm totally fine with that. I will work without it. Um, I think that's what people need to realize and to go on and kind of complain that we're so expensive. And I'm like, well, yeah, we have the same equipment. And if you can't afford it, I'm sorry, but I can't make it cheaper for you because I need to, to have some bread at the end of the day. Does that, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but does that extend to small animal vets just the same as a large animal vet? Like the overhead costs are generally. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, they probably have a little more overhead costs and that they have a facility. Um, and usually they have more staff than us. Mm-hmm. I think it can be frustrating, especially when someone will spend, you know, hundreds of dollars on um, massage and beamer and board and uh, come to me and say, this horse has been lame for two months and I've done everything and I only have $200 left. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I, I can x-ray it. But if that doesn't give you your answer, you, you've used your pool up. <laughs> I think we should stop and just let that moment sink in for a second. I, I, as a horse owner and hearing you say that, it kind of gave me a little bit of like a, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you're right. We tend to go to these other, what we perceive as cheaper options first and thinking like, oh, well, I'll get a massage first and we'll see if, or oh, I'll bring the chiropractor in and we'll see if that's going to help. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a few Beamer sessions and see if that helps. I think that was a really big eye opener for me just in that moment of like, it is, it is, you're taking from that pool, that opportunity to give the best care possible, put the veterinarian's eyes on, and they can then let you know, you know, don't worry about it. This is this is something the chiropractor can take care of. You know, it, not that your last case, like, bust. We're like, okay, I've, I've exhausted all other options. Let's call in the vet when you should be the first. And again, n- nothing against Beamer, Massage. Mm-hmm. Like, that all has its place. Chiropractic is a godsend. But... I always try to go by the rule of get a diagnosis first. Mm-hmm. Don't treat blindly because you're going to spend a lot more money and you're going to get mad at me eventually. <laughs> out of it. Do you think people's expectations haven't accounted for just the increase in costs? Because mm-hmm. I mean, I had my horse had her hoof x-rayed uh, last year, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it really actually, I was surprised. I guess I just thought it was going to be a lot more than it was. And it wasn't as much, but I've never had to do x-rays before. Right. So I'm wondering if just like, maybe some people remember what it costs 10 years ago or 15 years ago and expect the cost to be the same, but I mean, not, you guys are driving all over the country. The gas is insane right now. I mean, I would love, I remember when gas used to be, you know, 85 cents a liter. What a, what a time that was. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lameness exam was but that's not the case anymore across the board. I think equine vets are also our own worst enemy. We are the last ones to raise prices because we're so afraid of you guys walking out on us. I mean, if you compare bills, a small animal versus equine, like, yeah, your horse might have a big bill, but put in perspective, a lot, most of my classmates are small animal vets. They see four pets an hour, 15 minute appointments, boom, boom, boom. They're all there right there. I often have to drive to a barn for one or two horses then drive down the road to the next. And that windshield time is unpaid. I'm not making any money off of that. I'm just covering my gas. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I think trainers even charge for their, their time when they're traveling. Yeah, we're not good at it. We are our own worst enemies. You know, I think 
I do think equine medicine, <laughs> not to make everyone's hairs raise, I do think it's going to increase in the next decade dramatically because it has to. So I, I came with a couple of statistics for you guys. Um, about 5% of graduating veterinary students are going into equine medicine. So when you look at Canada as a whole, there's about 350 people who graduate every year. So about 16 people are going into equine medicine in Canada throughout the entire country. So like we should hold you very, very close. <laughs> well, we're retiring faster than we are replacing ourselves. Well, yeah. Like when you said about that, that vets are scared that people will leave. I was like, whoa, I thought it was the opposite. You know, like I feel like yeah. people are scared they're going to lose their vet, you know, it's, so it's, goes it's both very, ways. it's very much been our mentality. Um, we, have made ourselves so accessible and so affordable, believe it or not. Um, it it We have really shot ourselves, not just one foot, both. <laughs> we have no leg to stand on at this point. Here's an example. When I was practicing full-time equine medicine, I I made I brought home about $4,000 a month, which, you know, not terrible. Yeah. Um, but I also paid $3,000 for my student loans a month. Oh my gosh. So it was not feasible. To, it, I I was a trophy husband. Like <laughs> Demita paid everything. I paid my student loans and I paid my electricity. And that's all I paid because that's all I could afford. Okay. And that's, also, you know, I was on call 50 to 75 to 100% of the time. Wow. That is huge. I have a question for you that you might say I'm not qualified to answer. Okay. Which is perfectly Okay. Why do you think such a small percentage of people who are going into veterinary medicine are focused on equine medicine? I think if you compare students who, and again, there's just no study for this. Um, I think if you compare students who go into vet school, great year one, you will see a lot more of them say, I want to be a horse vet compared to grade four, uh, year four graduating. I think it's because small animal usually start around one hundred dollars to $150,000 a year, no on-call. Equine vets in the States usually start around $65,000 a year. On-call a lot. Mm. You know, like I've, I've had jobs that I was on-call 50% of the time. I've had jobs that I was on-call more than that. The other thing is it's a lot more dangerous. Mm. It's not really a matter of if you get hurt, it's when. We've mm -hmm. all gotten hurt. I've gotten a concussion from a horse. Demita got her hand crunched during a dental because the speculum failed. Mm -hmm. And it's just things that you have to protect yourself. That's why our disability insurance is more expensive than anyone else in the profession. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I have one. Nadine, I'm going <laughs> to. Normally Nadine asks, asks all the questions. So I feel like I've got a couple like in the bank. Yeah. On call. Mm -hmm. Can you just, you know, workplace for dummies? What is on call Exactly. Like, what does that mean for a veterinarian? You know that you're on call all of the time. What does that look like? What does that mean? And what kind of impact does on-call have on your everyday life? Yeah. So on-call is, I think everyone would agree with me, the, and the worst part about this job. But that is why 50% of the equine vets leave within the first five years. Okay. The on-call. Um, on-call essentially means being available 100% of the time as long as you're on-call. To field questions, to take emergencies. On-call is designed to take emergencies. The problem with on-call is when people call in and say, hey, what dewormer should I use? What? Oh, all the time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but again, 
horse vets are our own worst enemy because we answer. I answer. I know I do. I know I shouldn't. I know I should let that sit until 8 a.m. on Monday morning, but we don't. Mm-hmm. So on-call is just being available. On-call is having the risk of walking out of a, on a movie, having the risk of walking out on dinner with your wife, um, having the risk of w- missing your child's birthday party for the on-call. It is and all you, Yeah. You say you were on-call at one point forever. Yeah, I think um, I've done a couple of... So when I was an intern... I think this is kind of fields back to your other question, guys, is um, equine veterinarians, for the most part, I think we're kind of getting away from it now, are expected to do an internship. So an internship is essentially an extra year of school. I did one. My wife did one. Um, Dr. Koivu, Dr. Pike, Dr. McCaddy, uh, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Uh, Wenzel, Dr. Krauss. Our generation of equine vets are expected to do one. So essentially, we give up a year of our life. We make, <laughs> we, I, I made $30,000 that year. So essentially, and, and don't get me wrong. I did my internship at the equine clinic at Oakencroft. I adore those people. They taught me competency. I am a good vet because of them. But the internship as a whole, I worked every day for 28 days. I got one weekend off a month. I lived at the clinic. So anything that came in, I did. Anything that needed to be done overnight, I did. Um, I had an intern mate, which was a godsend. So we kind of shared. And if one of us needed sleep, the other one would tag in. But a lot of places don't have that. And we are expected to do that if we wanted to be really considered for any equine vet job. Like I said, that's kind of getting away from that. But the internship year is the best and the worst year of your life. And I don't regret it, but it was exhausting. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me. And it's like, it's it's almost like a rite of passage or something, you know, that you have to go through. And luckily now, I don't know about in veterinary medicine, how hard the the resident vets or the, the teachers are on you guys. But it used to be a thing, you know, in, in regular medicine where people were almost like berated, you know, just like so much lower than. So not only yeah. are you working for a fraction of what you would normally be paid, not only are you working nonstop and doing all of the things, which you're getting that education, right? Like that's your crash course in actual medicine and not just theoretical medicine, right? Right, and, yeah. But, but it's, yeah, it's like nonstop all the time. And not a great way to then jump into your career <laughs> um, completely depleted in every way. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I left my internship on a Friday. I moved back to new England and I started my other job on a Monday. There's never a break. And if, to me at that point in my job, I was like, this is normal. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I worked in Maine and I worked in Maine and New Hampshire um, for a clinic called TNT equine. And they are God. I still talk to them weekly. They were godsend, but my boss did have shoulder surgery at the time. So pretty shortly after I, I started, I was also covering, I think it was two or three months. I could be wrong of, I was on call for that time period. And they tried to get me some relief and, you know, a weekend here or there, but it was just me. And, you know, equine medicine is not a nine to five job. It's very seasonal, but in the on season in spring and summer, you start your day at eight and you get home around six, seven eight and if a colic comes in at 10 you go to the colic okay so we talked about the finances (laughs) and how we all need to stop complaining about how much things cost and i well i understand no that's real chris don't even 
That's true. Okay. See, you we're our worst enemy. Up. We're our worst enemy. <laughs> okay. So like we need to check ourselves when we start complaining about what we're paying because of all of the things that you outlined very well. But if we're talking about on call and we know that some people might call and ask what wormer they should use, what are some examples of like a true real emergency call and like what we maybe should wait and call the office for the next day? Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, if your horse is showing any colic signs, call your vet. You know, if your horse is a laceration, call your vet. They might say it can wait. They might say it's not closable and just to wrap it. If it's suddenly non-weight-bearing on one leg and you think it could be an abscess, a cellulitis, a fracture, call your vet. It's hard because in my head, I'm like, well, I want you to always call me. Mm-hmm. Again, we're all a little masochistic in this job. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you know this is not life or death at all, if you know it's something like, what... <laughs> Should I get my horse strongent or parental or uh, what else? Uh, I saw worms in my horse's poop. Can I drop it off today? No, no, you can't call me during the work hours. Mm-hmm. Things like that. I think that people were all I mean, guilty of I, feeling like we're like the only ones where we're like, well, it's, you know, it's just me. I'm, it's just me sending a message at eight o'clock on a Friday, I am guilty of where I've like actually stopped myself. I've sometimes not stopped myself and like sent the text because I don't want to forget. But I think that is a slippery, slippery slope because we forget how many just me's are coming into your text messages, your phone calls, all of those things. So there's so many of us Um, And we just, it's easy to feel like, you know, we're just the only one that you have to take care of. I mean, it's, people forget, like, some practices have, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand equine clients. Right. And a lot of people text, I did that to my vet growing up. I texted her last year and said, listen, this is the reckoning. I've got the same thing. I'm so sorry what I did to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um. It's, it's a really difficult line to draw because if mm-hmm. it's a questionable emergency, call. And if they talk you through it, great. But if it's, you know, clearly something that can wait, let it go till, no, let it go till Monday. I have a weird question. And I think I am on a, a little bit of a different spectrum maybe than you guys are talking. And I think it, it's like maybe just how I grew up. Do you think, Chris, is there any part of you that feels like you get to be friends And you get so close with the people that they just feel like you're their friend, but, but actually you're just like their friend who's on call all the time Mm -hmm. and, and they're the clients and there's not enough of a boundary because like, I still think I refer to my vet as Dr. McCaddy. Like I don't even call her, her real name. Yeah. I would email the office and they will email her or message her and then she'll call me like, I felt awkward even saying like, should I send a picture? And so I have like quite a professional boundary there. And maybe that's like, not just that, but like my medical professional. You're married. You're married to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm wondering, I'm like, okay. Okay. Like, would I call you Chris when we meet? (laughs) Like, honestly, (laughs) like, and I would think it's hard. It's hard for the doctors in that point of view and the vet to like feel actual relationships in that way. If you didn't. Like if you did put up such a boundary, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, I feel a challenge. I mean, there. honestly, the best and the worst part about this job is people. 
and those relationships. Because I have a lot of people who, a lot of clients who became friends, especially here in Nova Scotia, because I didn't, I knew one person and I was married to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a lot of my social circle is veterinarians and horse owners. <laughs> um, so you're right. It's, it's a really blurred line. I'm having a bit of a moment because I would never text my doctor. My expectation (laughs) of my relationship, the closeness of my relationship with my vet is completely different than the relationship I have with my very own personal doctor. Well, you know, that's an excellent segue because um, I remember very vividly, relatively recently, we had a very angry client who dropped off a fecal sample in the morning and called back screaming that they have not gotten results in the evening. In what world would your doctor give you results that quickly? Mm-hmm. It takes unless like, unless there were there wasn't flesh eating bacteria <laughs> in that poop. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> you know, it's just it's very frustrating when you seemingly and I think this is another pinpoint for the struggle of equine mental health veterinarians. Um, when you can perform you know, a physical exam, an x-ray, an ultrasound, blood work, and a fecal test all in the same day. And it's still not meeting their patient, their, their client's needs. I had another moment. Okay. I'm like, I feel like this is such a good, a good conversation just for me <laughs> as a client. <laughs> I'm like, when, when I see my vet, I'm like, how many things can I just like, we need to address all of the things right now. And I just had a doctor's appointment this week And I deliberately brought two things to my appointment and left it at that. And I know that when I go back to him, I will address a couple more things, but out of respect of that, that relationship, I only brought two. And yet, you know, I know how, how time constrained my bed is. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm bringing all the things to her, even when, you know, some things could wait two weeks, three weeks. Interesting. It's, yeah. And it's hard because a part of me is like, no, I want to hear everything. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's when you suddenly can perform all of that and still it's not enough. That is the nail in the coffin. That is the twist of the knife for us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes Um, sense. It, I, I'm a little frustrated on your behalf, but also mm-hmm. I think it comes back to that patient education. It's like the, the boundary and the, the patients need to know what to expect in or, and, and sometimes it's like a rocky path of like them understanding, okay, we don't do the practice like they did in the old days. Right. We can't do that anymore. It's, it's it, like, it, you know, we just can't, we need to have expectations. We need to have healthy expectations. And, you know, I think that I think that kind of speaks to a lot of the older veterinarians out there who really like I was at a my friend was at a conference last week and they did a um, sustainability lecture and she was telling me about it. And she was talking about how the, you know, 60, 70 year old veterinarians went up there and said, oh, no one wants to work. It's really hard to find an associate. And then she said, you know, someone who's like 30, 35 stood up and she's like, actually, we're here. We just would like to be paid fairly and we don't want to be on call 100% of the time and um we just want a little respect. And I think that is much more towards where the gener- this generation is pushing medicine as a whole 
and I, I do think it's for the better because it's not sustainable the way it is right now. Okay. So I know change is hard and we know that there's this attitude that comes along with like, well, that's the way things used to be. I used, you know, you can hear the, I used to walk uphill both ways to go to school and I could do this and I could do that. I feel like you are battling so much more than finances, client relations, like just battling the idea of working because you have to work your life away. This, this is, we're, we're going into a new phase of our working industry in general, and now looking at veterinary practices and saying, how can we work smarter, not harder so that we're, we have vets who have healthy families, who have healthy um, boundaries with their clients, who have a healthy self-esteem, who can sleep at night. And when are we going to shift the perspective with that is actually something to be prideful in, not in this like accessible 24 seven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I can't say it's that generation that generate, like there's a lot of great veterinarians that I've learned from in Mm -hmm. that generation. I don't want to paint that whole generation like that, but that attitude is not sustainable in this field or any other field because there's simply not going to be enough of us. Okay, so here's here's where we get serious because we know it's not sustainable. And can we talk about not one more vet? Because that is how we know it's not sustainable and why change absolutely has to happen. Yeah, um, so not one more vet is an organization that started after um, she was a behaviorist. She was very popular in the field of behavior. She wrote textbooks. She was brilliant. Um, Her name was Sophia Lynn. She was a veterinarian behaviorist, um, died by suicide. And I also try really hard to turn in my head, turn off the phrase committed suicide because committed seems very accusatory. Mm. And especially since I've joined this career, I I try really hard to watch my words, but not one more vet was kind of a, a brainchild of several veterinarians in the States. And it has blown up to, you know, um, try to support the mental health of small equine bovine exotic across the board veterinarians. So they're doing a lot of great things. They're doing, they have a lot of resources out there and it's a great organization because veterinarians, there is a a theme of suicide in this profession. I think we are the, the second most profession to die by suicide. And when I say that, I don't include just veterinarians. I include technicians, veterinary assistants, support staff, what what have you. I think everyone knows someone who has died by suicide in this profession. I know three. And I think a big part of that is because the people who go into this field are usually more vulnerable because we're all type A personalities. We're all very compassionate. We're all usually a little quieter and would drift more towards animals and people. And in that same vein, that kind of leads us more to higher levels of anxiety, depression, things like that. That's not saying every veterinarian is out there, but when you take a person like that and also throw them on call and also throw them working alone and also throw them really not making enough money to comfortably survive or even enjoy life, what's going to happen? So 
before I, after we chatted and I knew we were going to do this, I wanted to reach out to a family. And I just kind of wanted to tell her story. This really hit us hard because this was right in our backyard. This was in Ottawa. Um, so this is the story of Dr. Andrea Kelly. She was a graduate of the Ontario Vet College in Guelph. Um, and she was a practitioner and owner of the Ottawa Valley Large Animal Clinic. So she provided emergency, uh, she provided equine services to Eastern Ontario and in Western Quebec. So her clinic at the time of purchase, purchase she's, she was young. She purchased it, I, I think early 2019, early 2020, around there. Um, it was a bustling three doctor practice. But, you know, as COVID struck and so many of our careers changed or people relocated like I did myself, Andrea was the owner and she found herself the solo practitioner of a three veterinary practice. So every day, every night she was on call. She was really suddenly having to be everything to everyone. If you look on Google, Andrea's clinic, the Ottawa Valley Large Animal Clinic, was really full of positive, glowing reviews. People loved her. She was a very competent, very driven, very compassionate veterinarian. Um, but those are the factors that really made her more vulnerable to this profession's demons. So with the, honestly, as far as reviews go, there was one that um, her family said really greatly impacted her. It was really one of her only negative reviews. And she thought of that over and over and over again. And according to them, she just constantly thought about and wondered what she could have done differently on that case. Between that review, Andrea spent months working on her own, trying to hold a practice together. So she did take her own life in the summer of 2022. And I think what really bothered me as a fellow colleague, really, is the following week, they released a news article of Western Quebec because they were worried about finding a veterinarian. You know, it wasn't, it didn't highlight that Andrea was someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's partner. It interviewed a woman who was worried about who was going to vaccinate their pets that summer. Andrea was 36. Yeah. 36. Yeah. So much weight. I think a lot of the media, whether that be social or news i think it it almost paints us as a robot mm -hmm. and someone who's there to fix your pet and if you can't fix it i'll just blast it on the internet mm -hmm. um this week someone posted on pei about her dog was suddenly misdiagnosed as having cancer and the person who posted it i adore her i went to college together she did not mean to do this um this is not on her but i think the dog was suddenly was vomiting had diarrhea and it was an older golden retriever. So they, you know, thought, you know, this might be cancer. And then suddenly the dog threw up and vomited a sock, I think. And like, great, the dog lived. What a miracle. But That's instead of saying, what a miracle, people said, oh my God, that vet should have his license removed. Oh my God, what a terrible vet. Oh my God, switch vets. And you know, I don't know anything about dogs and cats. I went out of my way to forget. But the thing I couldn't forget is golden retrievers love to get cancer. Mm -hmm. it's absolutely on the table <laughs> as a possibility for those clinical signs. Mm -hmm. So I just, it it's social media has been ever since its infancy has been a thorn in the side of veterinary medicine. And Nadine, tell me if this is the same for human doctors, but we've all had a negative review. We've all had someone with a pitchfork going after us mm -hmm. in the past had to, uh, I, I've had, you know, 
my husband and his colleagues. And, you know, we've had to say like, don't check the web ND or, you know, like only the people that are either angry or just being dramatic, you know, are the ones that are going to comment on there. And then maybe the best patients are going to see that and then comment something to like, to change it, to say, no, no, they're actually a great bet. Those are the two kinds of people or, or doctor, you know, that are going to make those reviews is like the people that are just really angry and outraged for whatever reason. I mean, Uh, these people are human doctors and veterinarians are human, but that's the thing. We're not seen as human. I think not only do we need to hit home that doctors and vets are human, they're like the feeliest humans. <laughs> you are, <laughs> you know, like there's a reason why you as a vet are drawn to these animals and wanting to take care and fix and spend all of your money and time and energy on helping people fix their animals. And I can't help but think about the fact that you have all of these demands, financial and otherwise, and then on top of it, we haven't even talked about the trauma of watching incidents take place that you you wish you could do more in the situation you know there are situations i'm sure that you walk away from as a vet and say like it was out of my hands and that those are just as impactful as all of these other things that we've been talking about so far i think i i I think to play on that the worst situations we have are those situations where you have that client who has not paid you, who has been sent to collections and calls you with this emergency of a thrashing horse. And, you know, some of us go and we shouldn't because we know we're not going to get paid. This person owes us X amount of money and we are viewed as the bad guy when in reality that person put themselves in that position, not to sound harsh. Mm. And it's the sad reality of, owning an animal and i think that is probably the part that bothers me the most mm-hmm. and i'm sure some people will say well you should just go and i'm like yeah well do you go to work for free mm-hmm. after hours it, it's it's a very valid point mm-hmm. i mean it's a privilege to have a vet come out and for lack of better word ridiculous to expect someone to come and treat anything for nothing well, again, you guys are great with the segues. Um, hmm. I think this segues into something great in having a VCPR. So a VCPR is a veterinarian client professional relationship. A VCPR in every clinic is different, but in Nova Scotia, a VCPR is required for you to get emergency coverage. Because I'm there really is- glad you're bringing this up because this has definitely been something that's in conversation here in Nova Scotia, yeah. New Brunswick. Yeah. Um, I think what people need to understand is a VCPR is the bare minimum because of v- that that you can do for your herd. Because a VCPR is what guarantees emergency coverage. There's a growing trend in North America and Canada 
getting away from having a routine veterinarian. And by routine, I mean someone who just does your vaccines, someone who does your uh, dentistry, dental exams and dental floats. Nothing fancy, just your annual care. And there's a, a growing trend of people who are doing away with a routine veterinarian, but still expecting on-call coverage. And there, again, there's not enough of us to guarantee emergency coverage for every single horse out there. So that's why it's so important to find a veterinarian and look at them and say, do I get emergency coverage? Will you provide emergency coverage 24-7? Because it's on you to find it. It's not on us. I can't be everyone's veterinarian. I'm one person. And at the end of the day, a veterinarian, it's a job, to put it bluntly. And I will go to the ends of the earth for our clientele. But I can't do it for people who aren't. Here's a question about that, because it, it like Nikki says, it has come up. Yeah. And I totally get what you're saying. I think there is a there is a bit of a misunderstanding out there about mm-hmm. when we use a certain vet, like say for your yourself, if we yeah. if I have my own veterinary office, but then I bring you in for something else, and I've heard we've heard certain instances of then the other vet office dropping them as a client because yep. we use somebody else. Yep. And so we're not talking about that, right? Like we're talking, you know, about- you, you might be depending on. So mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly, what I try to do is if someone uses me nine times out of 10, I'm like Nicole McCaddy is a perfect example. I talk to Nicole all the time and I'm never seeing one of Nicole's patients without her knowing. So mm-hmm. in that vein, I'm not the one doing her, those colics. It's still Nicole. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an understanding with, what you're saying, like most vets around here, that what you're doing is like a specialized treatment specifically for lameness and they have nothing to be concerned about. It's not their ego that's involved here that they couldn't handle it. And you can't, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, that's, no. I mean, we've had this conversation before personally and uh, actually with uh, Jordan Koivu on the podcast right. about the issues that vets sometimes have with people that want to do other specific care like lameness and then that leads to I think Nikki you had this issue kind of in your own town right Mm -hmm. that you couldn't get emergency coverage it is a challenge you know I'm I'm in Amherst we do consider ourselves lucky that we are an hour's drive away from the island so we can get to the college prior to having uh Jordan at the barn, the college was what we relied on. And it's not that, you know, we use, we use a veterinary practice for our cattle, but they aren't trained in horses the way they're trained in cattle. And so when it came down to specific, even emergency situations, you have to trust that they are there for horses and that they have that knowledge base. And so, you know, we have them for our cattle and we did come across a problem where, you know, we use Jordan all of the time and we had an emergency and, you know, it's hard because we very much want to go to that vet um, practice for the general, you know, just everyday things. But gosh, when your vet is just so good, (laughs) Jordan, you know what I mean? When, when yeah. you just have that trust 
but you don't have the emergency care, it's like you're just shooting yourself in the other foot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's the best vet care that we've had in our barn for years. Well, I think Ever. <laughs> I think that leads into another great point. There's becoming fewer and fewer of us. Mm-hmm. And I think Holland is going to be a lot more popular in the coming decade. And I think it's a lot of owners are going to need access to a trailer mm-hmm. because Cornwallis has a radius, not me, but Cornwallis as a whole has a radius of one hour. And outside of that, they don't see reg- for routine stuff. You know, we can't drive three out. We can't drive to Stewie to see a colic because that puts all of our other clientele at risk. Yeah. And when you're a veterinarian, you have to prioritize your own clientele first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have, and I, I think in the Maritimes where it's really hard for us because where I was in New England, we had a referral hospital an hour away in three different directions. We were very lucky. We don't have that luxury here. We have mm-hmm. Prince Edward Island, mm-hmm. which for you is what, two hours? And for me and Nadine is what, five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's that's our referral. And that's our, you know, if you have a surgical colic, that's where they have to go to get cut. And hopefully they make it on the trailer. I think that without us reinventing the whole system here, <laughs> I think I think that communication is really the only thing we can do as owners is have the relationship with the vet that we are going to use and find out and make sure that we have emergency coverage or have a plan. <laughs> Yeah, really, there's that's the only option here. And when you when we live in a place like, you know, I mean, you have HRM, but for the most part, Nova Scotia is rural. More rural, you you know, people scream and shout about, oh, we're like I in Maine, where I grew up, Washington County, eastern down east Maine. There's not a lot of equine coverage. And the people I grew up with, you know, complain and moan. And I'm like, well, that is the price you pay for living rural. Mm. And I'm sorry to say it, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. And if that area could support a veterinarian <laughs> financially, there'd be one there. Cape Breton, it's, that's going to be a struggle. South Shore, that's going to be a struggle. Um, just because you live so far. And I think the further out you are and the less access you have to routine care or even emergency care, the ever more important that you need a horse trailer to get yourself if you need to and it's not a good solution but i think that is where we will be going i Uh, think that's that's like what a what an important consideration of every horse owner there are so many things we need to consider when we decide we're going to have a dog a child a horse whichever and that is maybe not something that people think about right off the bat when they're like i think i'm going to get the kids a horse yeah. But where do you live and what does access to a vet look like? And it isn't up to the veterinary system to make that better for you. If you really desire to have horses in your life, then maybe that's a factor in where you choose to live. That that That's something that I haven't even heard someone bring up before, but it's so yeah. valid. It's like common sense that totally isn't common. And everyone's entitled to a horse, but like you are not automatically entitled to my services. You need to establish yourself first. Mm-hmm. Like you can't call me for your colleagues only. I'm not going to go. I have too much on my plate already. Mm-hmm. And that I'm speaking for everyone. I think mm-hmm. I think everyone would agree with me in this profession. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's like, Nikki, you kind of touched on this is like some things that maybe some of us would think would be common sense. It's just not like, you know, we consider the daycares in our area. We consider the schools, our family, we consider where the nearest emergency hospital is and how far of a drive and what direction the ambulance will take us. A lot of families don't probably think about that, but we do. And like where we are and what direction the ambulance is going to go. Is it going to go towards Middleton or is it going towards the Valley? Cause yeah. that's the way I want to go. Yeah. And, and also when we moved out here to Aylesford, one of the very first things I did was call the, the vet clinic that I wanted to get in for my dogs and for my horses, which was different and get my records changed and make sure I had an appointment for my teeth and, and vaccines to make sure that I was on the list for emergencies. And that's the ideal client. And I'm not trying to be the goody two shoes here, but it's just like what I think of Mm -hmm. in those situations is like the care of everybody in the family, (laughs) including the animals. I think it's hard because, uh, um, When you think about a dog emergency, the owner physically has to put the dog in the car and drive somewhere and maybe drive to a secondary location like a like like ABC or a referral hospital. Whereas if you have a horse emergency, nine times out of 10, you just see it and you call someone else and they come and deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Chris, you said we have too much on our plate as it is. So this is not when someone is saying, you know. I simply can't go to your colic. You're not a client. It's not out of a a lack of kindness. It is a lack of accessibility because you clearly have too much on your plate. So one of those things you said, you know, are finances. Um, What is another factor other than finances that is taking a toll on the, not only the relationship between clients and vets, but also the mental health of vets. I just think there, uh, a big reason is there's just solely not enough of us. Mm-hmm. Demita and I, we would like to have children, but we have not because we don't want to leave everyone high and dry. That has come so intimate in our life that we have not, we put off ch- having children because we don't want to, abandon our clientele so what we finally hired another equine vet who'll be starting this summer and you know we're gonna take some time to get our used to but like we're thrilled to actually have the opportunity to have a mat leave mm. it's come so far for us that it, it prevents that aspect of our very intimate personal lives mm-hmm. you need work-life balance like everyone needs work-life balance i mean you're I- entitled to that <laughs> I have been at several clinics and it's, I really haven't had work by balance until I left full-time practice. What is the typical expectation? We've talked a little bit about expectations from clients mm-hmm. and owners. What are typical expectations from clinics mm-hmm. and bosses that may be putting mental health at risk? Um, That's a hard question. And I think... You know, like in every job, there's good bosses and bad bosses. Where I was in Maine, I had a wonderful boss, uh, but there was just two of us. There was just two of us with a DVM. So I was on 50% of the time regardless. Mm-hmm. And she appreciated me and she always took care of me. And like 
I have no complaints about working at TNT Equine. Since I left, they had a really hard time finding someone else. So to the point where, you know, my 60 plus year old boss was on call by herself. So they did something that I was really grateful to see is they started sharing on call with another practice. So being on call 100% of the time suddenly went to being on call 33% of the time. And it was just night and day for her. Mm. And it was really lovely lovely to see. You're starting to see these on-call co-ops pop up to share on-call. And it's just, I think it, it's a big part in making this job more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, Cornwallis, like you said, uh, Nikki, we are a mixed practice. So we see everything. Um, and there are seven large animal vets and they all share on call that said you know demita and i are the equine vets um then there's three or four cow vets what we try to do is because we know that there are people who would prefer to see a horse only vet all the time for their colleagues there's not enough of us Mm -hmm. so you know monthly the team you know my wife demita does a really good job of educating the cow vets in these emergencies, whether it be a colic, a cellulitis, a laceration. So they do a really good job. Like last last month, like the Dr. Alders, Josh Alders, sewed up an eyelid, which is pretty tricky. Beautifully. Like prettier than I probably could at this point. So we try to make sure everyone's prepared to see everything. And the same thing, Demita sees bovine emergencies. Um, she's not a cow vet, but she does a really good job with um calvings and c-sections and da's because she has these really long spindly arms and i have like lunch lady arms so <laughs> i'm not great at rectals i'll admit um i think there needs to be an understanding especially someone who lives in a rural area that you need to trust your dvm like you said nikki and you know at cornwalls for example all those equine clients are Demita's. But if someone else is seeing the emergency, if they have questions, they're still going to call her. They're still going to answer. Uh, she's still going to answer. She's, she might even go out because she's the only equine vet full time right now. So I think that is where it just makes for a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. It makes it feasible for us. Mm-hmm. And it makes it feasible for, like, I have friends in Ontario who are in a co-op and they're on call one night a week and every fifth weekend. And that's feasible. Mm-hmm. you know on call sucks but if you only do it that often great so chris does like does the veterinary association or any part of the government or provincial association have any can they make any impact are there grants or or is there a way you guys have like general meetings so that you could put forward an idea such as that or make changes yeah everybody for themselves no no so there's a lot of different organizations as far as equine goes the main or that really the only organization is the atlantic association of equine practitioners so the Mm -hmm. aaep so we're all a part of it um and the aap has done a really good job in the recent years of trying to put forth sustainability issues and trying to fix the problem because for years we've always said oh we're we're coming into a crisis as far as equine veterinarians And if anyone pulls anything from this podcast, we are not coming to a crisis. We're in it. Like when, when these, this older generation retires, there's no one to replace them. Like what you have is what you have. The crisis is, there's two crises here. Mm -hmm. 
the crisis is there is a lack of vets. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of vets that are coming up in the ranks mm-hmm. and willing to take on the role of what you are taking on. And then there's also the mental health crisis from being in this career choice. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> it's a it's a bad time overall, really. <laughs> and not to make light of it, but that's why I left. Like I yeah. It's not that I couldn't hate well my, at one point Demita looked at me and she goes, I would like you to quit your job. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was it really sunk in me. I was like, okay, I need to choose myself, choose my marriage, choose my family over this career because just because you love something doesn't mean you it won't eat you. <laughs> and Chris, I mean, you were about to say it's not that I couldn't handle it, but at what point is like I can handle it that like I don't find joy in anything anymore? Well, like that's, that's not the equivalent of handling it. That is, it's too much. That's just right? it, and you, you, you know, it, it can suck the life out of you, and mm-hmm. that's why you know you really have to guard yourself, and you know serve your clients to the best of your abilities and, you know, provide the best care you can for them. Um, but if they're not your client to really just let it go and they can get mad at you, but mm-hmm. they're veterinarians and it's their responsibility to find one to put your family first. It's a job at the end of the day, it's a job. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people leave their job at work. We don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I constantly, Um, get questions after hours about lamenesses and imaging and horses I sent to surgery. And, you know, I, I still answer them at 8 PM. People message me on messenger and I know they shouldn't, but they do. And I left them and I don't say it's not their fault. It's mine. (laughs) I don't have those boundaries set up. Even me, I probably shouldn't be preaching this um, because I am just as bad as the next guy, if not worse. Yeah. Because you have that small business owner mentality. Yeah. Also. Yeah. We are so afraid of losing clientele when in reality we have too many. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> this, I, I mean, it, it's a really important conversation that we're having here. And I think anyone who's listening can recognize that it's not the easiest topic, um, but it is very important. And I feel like we can bring just to wrap things up, Nadine, you can like mm-hmm. help if, if, uh, if you disagree with this, but I feel like a way for us to be able to bring some positive into this conversation, I have two questions for you. How can we as clients help you as our vets? And second, if you could offer one piece of advice to someone we need vets we need the future of vet care to be positive Mm -hmm. and we need people to choose to go to school for it Mm -hmm. so what is your piece of advice for someone who's sitting and saying but i wanted to be a vet chris and it sounds like it's not a very good idea as far as how you can help i think there's a couple really easy things owners can do um one of which is train your horse i can't do anything on a horse that's not halter broke i'm not going to because i'm not putting myself in that situation because i have and i got hurt Mm -hmm. 
No, I didn't even think of that one. Yep. Check. <laughs> I remember someone calling me in in New York when I was an, an intern and she said, I have a feral horse that's lame. Um, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and she's like, and I said, okay, I can come. Can you get a halter on? She's like, no, I can't get a halter. And I was like, well, that, okay, well, good luck. I don't know what the disconnect was because if you can't touch your horse, what, how can I? Do they, is there, okay. Can you use a tranquilizer dart? Is that what you would do? Just the same I as mean, if it was a moose? In theory, but tranquilizer darts are few and far between. I was going to uh, say, is that something you would carry in your truck? Like, no. Like, honestly, Nadine, if I have to use a tranquilizer dart on a horse, I don't want to work on it. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I want to go home at the end of the day. I have good horses hurt me, so I don't need one I need a tranquilizer dart for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't work in the uh, in the safari. Yeah, I have worked in a couple zebras. I have worked in a couple zebras. They they love to get salmonella. They love salmonella. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, we may think it's common sense to have your horse trained, but then also sometimes we don't even acknowledge the issue until it's looking us in the face and all of a sudden, Mm. you know, our horses don't get their feet. Yeah. And like, honestly, beyond that, simple things like being able to lift your foot. Mm-hmm. you know things like that like um almost desensitizing a horse enough to get an iv injection because i don't mind our little rangy horse but if they're gonna put me through a wall mm-hmm. there comes a point where i can't do anything because i don't want to get hurt i if i get hurt i don't make money and i need to money to survive mm-hmm. um, okay Mary- so that was that so train your horse great your horse. great way um, to help our vets What's number two? Be willing to trailer your horse. Have your horse able to be trailered. And I understand when you have a down horse or even a fractured leg. I under, I'm not saying that. But I really believe we are heading towards a place in equine medicine where if you have an emergency after hours, you're going to bring it to the vet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's going to be the future. Um, I can't. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did, but. I think having a trailer or having access to a trailer will become much more important than it in 10 years than it is right now. Um, and you know what? Trailers are not cheap right now. They're either. not. And I just want to say, because we did talk about this in another episode recently about, you know, trailering and, and having your horse trailer ready and having a trailer there in case of emergencies. But we put our horse trailer away for the winter because it's like a living quarters trailer. And We've wanted a bumper pull for quite some time, but they're just about as expensive as a living quarters trailer right now. So we have put it off, but I will tell you, we always know a neighbor or a friend's trailer that we already have permission to borrow in case of emergency. I bought my bumper pull. My parents bought my bumper pull when I was 11 years old. And you know what? That has moved me back and forth to Canada. My horse has moved with me every time I have crossed that border. I think he's in, he's been imported three times by now. And, you know, he's 18. He doesn't leave the confines of this property. But I have that trailer and I have it inspected every year in case he needs a surgery. Because I don't want to be his vet. I He is the last thing I want to touch medically or professionally. <laughs> um, but I always have that ready in case I need to bring him to a referral hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's that is a change that 
people are just going to have to accept. Correct. Like this is, this is the future. And if we want to have vets, we have to, we have to accept change. Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to change whether they accept it or not. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, other things. This is a big one. Uh, realistic expectation. Mm. Don't come to me with a 27-year-old lesson horse and say, I want to make a jump 3-6. I'm like, <laughs> I, it's, and people have. And we are not miracle workers. And we're you know, I, I, that is probably the biggest disconnect with this job is owners who think we can work miracles, whether that be with one x-ray or one injection or what have you. I hope it does. At $5. I promise anything, you know? Um, yeah, for, for $35. When I was a newer grad, I would always really stress when I referred a horse to a referral hospital for like colic surgery. And I would always worry. I'm like, oh God, what if it's okay? Like, what if, what if it didn't need to go? And I really changed my mind. And I'm like, I hope it's okay. Mm-hmm. I hope it steps off that trailer at the hospital. A-okay. I hope it makes a fool of me because you know what? That horse means it needs to live another day and it doesn't need surgery. Mm-hmm. And if that owner had to go for a three hour drive, well, I'm sorry I did that to you, but your horse is okay. And oh. that's, that's the that's what matters right but i would <laughs> rather have my doctor or my vet overreact yeah to something and say like these are your possibilities we're going to you know look at this and give you the best care versus i had a conversation with somebody today who he he had a doctor who said you don't have to go you don't have to have an overnight stay at the hospital you'll you're fine and he was then in an in in a coma for like three months or for three weeks after that, like the day after. So, you know, he, I'm sure he wished that somebody had said, maybe, maybe you should probably stay the night tonight. Well, I always tell people horses were invented at 4 PM on a Friday. So whenever you're- you used that in our last one too. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's trademark. Um, So whenever we're faced with an issue with a horse, time is not on our side. Mm -hmm. If it's a strangulating- lipoma or if it's a torsion time is not your friend and if you have to drive four plus hours through a surgery i'd rather make you drive mm-hmm. just to cover our ass mm-hmm. because i've had owners get mad at me and i finally said to them i said ma'am your horse is okay right and she's like what does that have to do with anything i was like doesn't it have everything to do with it <laughs> oh my gosh That's lovely. <laughs> oh boy yeah. Yeah. And then as far as advice for anyone mm. wanting to do this job, it's a very reward- rewarding career. And it's something that I think you can be proud to say you do. I am still very proud that I'm an equine veterinarian, but it's a double-edged sword and we're not all miserable. We're all overtired and we're all overworked. And that's why so many of us go into small animal medicine, because we can make more money and we can have a more work-life balance. So if you really love this job, I never persuade anyone against going to vet school. But I like them to know the realities of what they're going to come up against. And I hope it's different for them than it was for me. Maybe the, I mean, not that I would want to persuade anybody not to come to a rural place, but 
maybe somebody would just have to be willing to move to a place that would work with the lifestyle that they want to have. I always say, and I kind of always explain my situation because I have grown to love Nova Scotia. I don't want anyone to think I don't, but you can grow, you can pick where you live or you can pick how you practice. And if you want to be that fancy surgeon, um, equine surgeon, you're not going to live in Mount Uniac, Nova Scotia. <laughs> right. I mean, even if you're from there, even if your family's from there, even if you go and open a facility, you will cut three colics a quarter. It'd be great to have one as a veterinarian locally, but there's not enough business to keep you afloat. Mm -hmm. So that's where you really have, and at least me, I really had to come down to, okay, do I want to be spending my life with this person who I love very much? Or do I want to go towards what I thought I always wanted to be professionally speaking? And I had to pick. And I have no regrets. Mm -hmm. I'm still doing what I love. It's just not the path I ever anticipated myself having. Did I give advice? Yeah. <laughs> I think I you were authentic. Okay. Yeah. I think you were authentic okay. with your advice. That means no, Nadine. <laughs> I think you did, but okay. Don't I can't me. promise we'll that again. anyone's going to listen and be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a vet in Nova Scotia. As we get ready to wrap this up, I do want to just take two seconds and just bring a, a awareness or let people know that we are aware that there are a lot of other professions out there, especially mm -hmm. through COVID who have struggled. I'm talking about the teachers and the nurses and the paramedics and all of the first responders and the physicians, of course, and, and anybody else who's in a career that they're like, well, I feel that way too, you know, mm -hmm. or I'm overworked and I want work-life balance. And, and so we just want to acknowledge that and just say, you know, we're having this conversation today about um, veterinary professionals specifically because we are uh, an equestrian podcast, <laughs> but don't want to um, leave anybody out in that situation. And so I, I think that as horse owners, the biggest thing that I'm hearing here, because I'm a, a results person, I really try to be empathetic, but I'm also like, okay, the things we need to do are have realistic expectations, treat people with kindness and understanding and patience and be prepared and take responsibility for our own animals. I would agree with that. I think at the end of the day, the animal is your responsibility mm -hmm. and you need to put in place proper care. I feel like it's important for us to focus on the fact that this is this is a system in crisis. So when you are frustrated with you know your vet or a clinic or whatever that looks like, look at your frustration at, for what it is. At, you know, why are you frustrated? Is this actually a human issue? Is this something that is because someone doesn't care or is it because someone is absolutely unable to offer you what you think you need right now? Yeah, I, I think I think it's important for people to realize veterinary medicine, human medicine, dentist, dental medicine, it's a practice. It's called veterinary practice. 
and we're going to grow as practitioners. What's called practitioners. <laughs> um, the goal is to grow and to change and to uh, advance. And in that, we could screw up. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we don't. We've all screwed up. Please know for 98% of us, we think of that screw up every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something we take lightly. And if you think your veterinarian takes it lightly, really reflect on that. Because if I was a betting man, I bet they didn't. Mm-hmm. Even little screw ups we worry about. Little things like, uh, even in my own practice, I go to bed thinking, did I scrub that joint enough? <laughs> or mm-hmm. was that really a lesion on the ultrasound? Or I know Demita has been like, I wonder if that call is going to be okay overnight. Like it is always on our mind. And I think, and Nadine, you can speak to this too. It's exhausting and compassion fatigue is real. Mm-hmm. To just be overwhelmed with the emotional toll of your every day-to-day job. Yeah, it never, it never leaves. I, I get it. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, from the human side as well. It's something that you take home and you're thinking of it and you're checking the blood work and you're checking the lab work and you're worrying about those people and you're worrying about the conversations that you're going to have to have the next day. And, and, you know, it's, we, we are constantly in a state of worry (laughs) in this profession. Did we do it right? Did we do it enough? Were we enough? I think what it comes down to is, and I have great clients thank you goes a really long way because it's often a thankless job. I was going to say, like, is there any part of this that it would be nice to hear, to hear the thank yous, to hear the good reviews, to have you positive feedback. Nadine, you have sung her praises and I agree. I love Dr. Nicole McCaddy. Have you ever written her a good review? No. Well, those make our goddamn day. Every thank you card I've gotten from a client, I have in a shoebox under my bed. And you know what? I'm going to throw this out here because, and I thought of doing this and I didn't get around to it, but working at a medical clinic, we always love at Christmas time when people bring in chocolates and treats and people bring flowers and cards. And I bet you they like that at the vet clinics too. (laughs) We do. We enjoy carbs. We enjoy carbs. (laughs) Because, you know, like people do that at the medical clinic. And I I almost went around to my dentist and the horse vet and the different vets, but I just didn't get to it this Christmas, but I might do it next year. Yeah, I, I think a thank you goes a long way. It really does make our day. And it, if it takes no energy on your part, why not? Mm-hmm. Ah, well, we can we can put a little energy in. We can we can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, This was just, I know, not the most fun conversation for you to have, but I do feel like maybe it was beneficial for you to share these things. I I hope, yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I I hope it was beneficial to hear from a veterinarian's perspective. I think we need to hear it. It was great for us. I'm sure it will be for the listeners. And a lot of us, knock on wood like a lot of us don't have a lot of problems regularly mm-hmm. and we're just seeing the vets like once a year so we don't even know all of this is going on right mm-hmm. you know it's a, my favorite client is the person who calls and says I just moved to the area I just want to establish myself 
like brilliant. Those are the smartest people you'll you'll know. Okay, I just have to say that <laughs> I appreciate this conversation because I don't want to be the asshole client. I want to be the client that, you know, my vet says, oh, sh- you know, she's a great client. So, and I feel like I had a lot of light bulb moments in this conversation <laughs> where I was like, man, I have, this is like eye-opening. So I I really appreciate the, your honesty. And maybe, you know, you're speaking on behalf of vets. I can speak on behalf of, of clients who have <laughs> made vets feel less appreciated, but that, um, you know, not all of us are trying to take advantage and uh, we need this education. We need to have these conversations and hear the things so that we can be better for you. Yeah. We, that, I, I'm happy you guys invited me. I think, I think we ended it. <laughs> I think we did it. <laughs> hey, and I mean, like, Whenever you have to discuss your next strategy, give me a call. I'm available. <laughs> if you want to discuss the Rwandan genocide, I'll read oh some. Oh my gosh! I used to teach about it, man. I'm Perfect. there. I'm there. Perfect. You guys are on your own with that one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make you cry this time, which no. is a goal. Which was a goal. Oh, yeah. No. Well, I I didn't I I didn't need a Kleenex, but I did choke a small amount wow. just just <laughs> once though. That was good. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to send us some love is by sharing about Canada Horse Podcast with your friends finding us on Instagram and leaving a review is always appreciated with your support of the show. You are making a positive impact on our horse world until next time. Right on Canada.